is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. It's week 36, working from home for many still, although I was mostly in the office this week. But it was a week, it was a tough one, where COVID-19 deaths topped 250,000 in the United States. We did have some good news. Pfizer and Moderna both had upbeat news when it came to a vaccine. And yet the world was reminded constantly that we still are in a health pandemic, probably well into 2021. With that in mind, our stories, our highlights this week mostly have a virus angle, but we do have a few surprises. So coming up this hour, you're going to hear from the CEO of Moderna and the CEO of Welcome Leap. You'll also hear from the chief epidemiologist at the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention, also the president and CEO at Mahindra Agriculture of North America, on who is buying tractors during the shutdown. You will be surprised. We begin, though, with the cover story of this week's magazine. The cover art alone, I've got to say, you've got to go online or check it out on the newsstands because it really encapsulates our love affair with our pampered pets and how they are training all of us to use the online retailer of everything and anything for pets. We're talking about Chewy. Bloomberg News wealth reporter Anders Mellon and Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber joined us for more. It's a fun one, um, and this is one that um, I think we were we, we've been interested in for a while because look, like uh, the staff of Business Week has a lot of cats and dogs at home, um, <laughs> and there have been acquisitions that were made during the <laughs> pandemic. And if you have a dog and go to a dog park like I do, you also recognize that there were many, many, many more dogs in this neighborhood than there were before the pandemic. And so one true. of the big beneficiaries of this has been Chewy the online pet retailer that does pet deliveries, and that's what our story's about. It is, and I gotta say, Joel, it's one of those things in the shutdown that as I would walk my dog, Scout, around the very quiet neighborhood, I would see boxes of things, and I often saw chewy boxes on the curb. Yeah, and you know, they're coming to our house, too. Um, <laughs> uh, it's actually, in one of the, our story meetings, it turns out that you know there's a lot of co-op apartments in New York City that aren't supposed to have pets. Oops. And chewy boxes are outing them because it's like, oh, look. Where'd <laughs> that come from? Somebody's getting a dog food delivery. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, so the, the story of chewy, though, I think it's, it's one of these amazing ones because it, you know, the, the company's been around for, for nine years. Uh, started basically by a couple guys who just realized they were they were going to get into the um, jewelry business, mm. and then realized, wait a second, there could be a bigger opportunity in pets, and they basically scrapped it out for nine years, and in the process of that, sort of faded from uh, the company, and the company now has a has a new CEO, and the story sort of starts with Anders crunching some numbers and. Of realizing that he's actually incredibly highly compensated. How <laughs> how highly compensated is he, Anders? Uh, about 108 million uh, for 2019. That's what brought me on to to this story. I, I um, we ran our highest paid uh, CEOs list this summer, and Sumit Singh made 108 million last year. And I turned to my editor and said, "Who in the world is Sumit Singh?" And uh, turns out he's the CEO of Chewy, and that's yeah, that's where it all started. Right, and it's kind of like, what is Chewy? I have to say, we have a, a market guest who comes on, and every time she's like, buy Chewy, buy Chewy, buy Chewy. I mean, this is a business, you know, and I, and you put it in the story, uh, Anders, that it's very much kind of akin to Amazon in its early days. Yeah, it really is. It's it's What sets it apart from Amazon, 
Amazon was a model for much of the the quickness, the ease, uh, and the pricing. But what really sets Chewy apart is the fact that you actually have a customer service number to call. And if you call it, there is a person that responds to you within six seconds and is willing to talk to you four hours, if that's what you feel like, about your pet, about pet food, about the fact that, you know, anything. I've, I've heard stories of customer service agents who've literally been on the phone for several hours with nice. with. Uh, pet owners that call in. One of the things, Carol, that I think is really interesting about the business is, you know, Amazon, when it started, it had that one area of expertise Mm -hmm. that it just nailed, which was books. It was like, how do we bring as many books as we possibly can online and do um, e-commerce as a as a bookstore, right? Right. And and I think Chewy actually kind of like it's almost like they surveyed the landscape and said, "What's the thing that we could have recurring payments with that Amazon hasn't thought to do yet? And how do we figure out what that is and then do it at warp speed effectively?" And they recognize that pets are this thing. It's a it, the number in the story, ninety nine billion dollars a year um, wow. being spent by Americans on pets. If you could get one slice of that, it's a great business. And what they figured out was that there's a lot of things that you can do that are recurring payments, whether it's dog food deliveries yep. or medications, and all of those things are just cruise controlled. It's a subscription revenue model. And it has just allowed them to go sort of warp speed. And they were on a pretty good trajectory before the pandemic. And then the pandemic really played to it. And so, Andrews, tell us about what they, how, how they've really capital, capitalized on everything this year. Yeah, they've already, in the first two quarters, they added more customers than in all of the prior fiscal year. Jeez. And they're on track to finally uh, turn EBITDA positive this year uh, and they are also on track to hit roughly $7 billion in revenue up from, if I don't misremember, around 4.9 in 2019. They're definitely seeing a lot of growth during the pandemic. That was Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber and Bloomberg News wealth reporter Anders Mellon on this week's cover story and why 2020 is the year of the pet. Check out that full cover story and more great coverage in this week's issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. It is online, on newsstands, and always on the Bloomberg. Coming up, from pampered pets to giving commercial renters a helping hand during the pandemic, this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Businessweek with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the highlights from our daily radio broadcast and podcast, and that included a conversation about real estate. In a week where we saw many stories crossing the Bloomberg about central London rents plummeting as residents fell to suburbs, office workers wanting to keep working at home just not every day. So with all of that in mind, we caught up with Pierre DeBoss. He is co-founder and managing partner of Romer DeBoss. It's a New York City-based law firm specializing in real estate. He gave us an update on the hard-hit retail and restaurant industries. The biggest issue that we're encountering, especially in you know major cities around the country, is how, what's going to happen um, if, if the second wave continues going down this path, and how do local economies of densely populated cities, which are not having that same level of density and the local demand coming from the workforce and from people who flood the city, impacting local businesses? Um, and I'll give you, you know, a good example. We're talking about one one of the most you know important topics right now is retail and restaurant, and what does the future of retail and restaurant look like, and how's that going to impact the commercial real estate market? And when you take a city, you say take from Manhattan for example, you know we're sitting here in Midtown Manhattan, and it's roughly depending where you read, mm. ten to fourteen percent of the workforce is back in the office. 
and you know certain pockets of the city are not resident they're commercial neighborhoods where they're you'd probably office buildings so on and so forth not apartments where people live and reside mm-hmm. so what impact we're seeing is that you know what's that going to have on restaurants in particular and retail and you know how are landlords renegotiating rents to keep these businesses afloat and what happens to the local economies if these businesses go under. Well, and help me out here, because you understand this industry. I mean, I think about, and I look around the neighborhoods as I go in and out of the city. I mean, there's a lot of empty retail. Uh, There's a lot of boarding up of places. And I do wonder that, you know, the retail, the restaurants that we lose, how long does it take for that to come back? I mean, restaurants, it's unbelievable, the cycle, right? We know it's a tough business, and yet we constantly see new entries on the market on the marketplace. But you understand cycles. You know, when we've got a really tough cycle like the one we're going through right now, how long does it take to build it back up? You know, with the restaurant space in particular, that's what everybody is sitting here speculating in terms of, you know, when I'm renegotiating leases with landlords, I'm seeing completely different, you know, opinions and tactics that landlords are using in responses in terms of tenant um, concession requests and renegotiations. And from my perspective, you know, if I'm looking at it from a, as a landlord, you know, you want to keep these tenants and businesses afloat as long as possible because, you know, there will be a light at the end of the tunnel. We've had great news in the last two weeks in terms of, you know, the progress of a vaccine. And, you know, you can see that life will have some semblance of normalcy in the next year or so. Um, the that's a long is, time though, right? <laughs> that's that's a, long a very long time. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a great point to bring up. That's a really long time next year or so. You know, I say that in an optimistic tone with, yeah. a, you know, with, with, it's in a, with negative news in reality. But, you know, the question though to ask is that if that tenant vacates, When's there going to be a ne- uh, someone else who wants to come in and start a restaurant in the middle of this, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's the thing that's mind-blowing to me is that, you know, you're going to sit on that vacant, that space vacant for several years, in my opinion. Um, we're wow. you know, I'm reading that unless there's relief or a quick rebound in, in, in the market, you know, we're talking roughly up to two-thirds of restaurants potentially going under um, in the New York City area. Now, you know, to, your, to answer your question in terms of how long will that take to recover, you know, A, nobody knows, but we're talking years. Mm-hmm. We're talking, you know, it's, it's too much of an absorption rate. Well, you know, I do wonder too, um, Pierre, did the financial crisis give us a little bit of a playbook on this? I know it's not the same type of crisis, um, but it was a tough one and it lasted a long time and took us a long time to come back. Yeah, it certainly did. And that's the most recent crisis to compare this to. And clearly, you know, that had a financial ripple effect across all of New York City. But this is just so, you know, it's this is impossible to find a point of comparison, you know, given that we're talking a global health pandemic, which is causing, you know, the governor to intervene and cap capacity in restaurants, which is causing people to have, you know, the the fear for their own health to be, to go outside and congregate with others. I mean, it's... It's, it's just drastically different. You know, back in 2008, you know, clearly um, the, the city lost a lot of money and there was, an, you know, people did flee the city, but it was nowhere near the same exodus of people that have left the city as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, you can feel it in the city. You just can feel it. You know, it's interesting. What, what are kind of some of the... the um, offerings that landlords are, are, are putting out for their tenants to kind of help them out in this time? 
You know, my favorite one, we, our office renegotiated a lease for a restaurant tenant where um, they're located in Rockefeller Center. So when you take the location, you know, the demographic that's going to the restaurant is either tourists or people who work in the area and, and are going to frequent the restaurant. Right. It's not a residential neighborhood. So clearly that, that, that demographic is not in New York City right now. You know, tourists in the workforce. It's, right. it's not here. So we renegotiated that specific um, lease and a couple others where the rent for the next 12 months is 10% of the gross receivables of the restaurant. So if the restaurant makes $100,000 this month, the landlord gets $10,000. If the restaurant makes you know $50 next month, the landlord gets $5. Um, and it's really a way for landlords to show a vested interest in preserving you know right. small businesses and maintaining some some semblance of cash flow, right? Which, like we said, it's right. when are you replacing that tenant? And it's right. better than none. But do those and tenants then have to peer make it up later on, or is that just like listen? We understand you're not making a lot of money. This is what your rent's going to be for this month, and we're not going to try and come back later. You know, I'm seeing all different approaches. Okay. The most common one, landlords will first come and say, we'll give you deferment, and we'll tack it onto the back end. But like you said earlier, you know, restaurant business is a tough business to begin with. Even mm-hmm. in good times, could they afford 1.5 times rent? So that's not viable for most. Yeah. Um, some are giving, you know, um, rent relief, rent forgiveness. But, you know, the, the smart ones are committing to something for the next 6 to 12 months, giving them something to keep them going, um, and also to have incentive to keep going, and then seeing what the world looks like and reassessing. Um, that's why, you know, I love the idea of the fixed percentage of gross yeah. revenue for, you know, 12-month time period. I can talk to you from a different perspective of a lawyer representing a number of businesses and also as a small business owner. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, I co-founded a firm. We have about 40 employees total. And I can tell you the uh, people love working from home. Um, yeah. They ideally in a perfect world have a hybrid model where, you know, they have access to an office but aren't required to come in daily. And, you know, if you would have asked me back in March when we first had the shutdown, you know, I'm I, I'm one of the few 40-year-olds who still writes checks. So I'm a little <laughs> bit of old school myself. I write a check occasionally, just occasionally yeah, too. <laughs> well, a couple times a month, just for old time's sake. And, you know, I, I love coming to an office. I, I don't I personally don't like working from home. That's Romer DeBoss co-founder and managing partner Pierre DeBoss, not liking working from home, but as we know, many do, and they want flexibility. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, real estate figures out life in a pandemic. So too has the ag industry. And who knew? Homeowners. They're buying tractors while stuck at home. That's coming up. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. One of the areas impacted by COVID-19 is one that was deemed essential during the health pandemic. We're talking about the global agricultural industry. A major player in that industry, Mahindra, the conglomerate based in India. And like other companies which were initially shut down by the pandemic, Mahindra Agriculture North America got a surprise when business actually picked up. We got more on that from Viren Popley, president and CEO at Mahindra Agriculture North America. He was in Houston. We are seeing a pretty large number of cases, and so everyone's, you know, it's pretty much like the rest of the country. Everyone's kind of uh, wearing masks and kind of isolating themselves and living further and further out from everyone, each other. And so at some level, somehow it seems to be working well for the tractor business. Well, let's talk about this. I mean, first of all, if you could take me back to the spring, what was going on for you and your team at the company? And I'm curious then, kind of take us forward, how things have evolved. But what was it like back in the spring? 
Well, back in the spring, I think in March when this thing started, I think it, like everyone else, we were completely panicked and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we really pulled back, uh, you know, went down the road of shutting down the plants and manufacturing and the supply chain kind of froze. Uh, we had our own versions of layoffs and furloughs. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, you know, we tried to focus on then as we, but what we found was the retail industry suddenly took off somewhere towards the end of April. And I guess as people were spending more and more time in their farms and back ho- in their homes, they were wanting to do more home improvement, moving out. So we saw the tractor industry started to pick up pretty quickly. And uh, so we had to figure a way to come back. And, you know, we started the same thing, which is temperature checks, you know, split shift, slowly bringing people back, putting in all the plastic barriers and separate and redesigning the production line and production flow through so ever since that happened, it's just been momentum's been gaining, and so far uh, the industry's uh, you know just uh, the year to date, I think industry's up twenty three percent. That's pretty remarkable. Well, talk to me a little bit, um, Viren, if you about the demographics of who was buying. Because my understanding, my producer uh, Paul Brennan was filling me in a little bit earlier that I think seven percent of your uh, of sales were customers that actually never had owned a tractor before. Actually, that's seventy percent of the people Se- who buy tractors. Seventy. Whoa. Yeah. Okay, we we left out a zero. That's tremendous. I mean, first of all, what kind of tractor are they buying? So basically, we generally operate in the you know the small tractor, the mid and compact tractors that are between uh, twenty to one hundred and ten horsepower, and uh, those are largely driven by you know rural lifestyle, uh, small farms, and the second tractor or third tractor in a big farm. So they're not the really big row cropping tractors. They're smaller in size and they operate more in the large homeowners and rural lifestylers. A bit of a surprise for you to see that market come alive? Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, I think uh, pretty much the whole industry has been caught by surprise. Uh, we've seen, uh, you know, the industry inventory at the dealerships are down significantly, obviously, because of the huge demand and you know, the supply chain being challenged and, uh, you know, our ability to ramp up globally and uh, get parts in has been a bit of a challenge. But now we are, we are back on track and, you know, being able to supply back in. Well, but I, it was a big surprise. It, no, no, no. Forgive me. I cut you off. The supply chain, was it problematic a little bit in the beginning? Oh, yes, it was. Mm. Uh, I think, uh, you know, with shipping shut down, ports shut down, uh, factories all over the world also going through their own, world. you know, the pandemic is global. So it's not just right. one country that's impacted, right? So everything was shut down. So we had a tough time getting parts made, getting them moved, bringing them in. Then, you know, the whole challenges of the local market of getting the workers in, getting them, you know, protecting them, keeping them safe. Yeah. And then even our dealers, you know, many of our dealers had to transition to this new environment. So helping them on the journey of digital marketing, helping them on the journey of safe delivery, cleaning equipment. So there was a, it was a pretty interesting and a uh, lot of work to be done in the last six, eight months that we've had to go through. Viren, one thing I want to ask you, so Charlie Pellet, our, our news uh, broadcaster, uh, bringing that headline, U.S. COVID-19 deaths top 250,000, that is according to Johns Hopkins. These are really troubling numbers. When you see these numbers, you know, and we're starting to see cities and certainly states uh, continuing to do rollbacks and shutting down parts of their economy, what do you think about and how might that impact your business? I mean, you guys have seen kind of a benefit as more people have been home. Do you anticipate then in an odd way, like we've seen with a lot of businesses, whether it was Netflix or some others or Zoom um, or Peloton, that you will continue to benefit as a result? 
Well, uh, you know, it is it is a really sad situation, and, and you know, every yeah. life loss is tough uh, to deal with. Uh, see, the point is that the Fed has announced, I think, very a benign interest rate regime over the next 12 to 18 months. So, you know, money availability is there, and I'm hoping that, you know, there will be one more stimulus announced uh, fairly soon. Mm-hmm. And when these two come in, and if this trend continues, I guess, you know, people are going to be stuck at home, and, you know, they need things to do. And, yeah, I do think that the tractor industry will continue to do well, and, you know, people will want to improve their homes or... You know, we're also seeing a trend of people, you know, with this work from home, the concept of distance has has vanished. He's right. So many things have changed as a result of COVID. That's Mahindra Agriculture North America CEO and President Viren Popley. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Still ahead, never again. Preventing tomorrow's health crisis from the Bloomberg New Economy Forum. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. This week, Bloomberg hosted virtually its third annual New Economy Forum. It's four days of virtual programming, each day focusing on a different pillar that's facing the world. I moderated a conversation on how the world can ensure that we never, never have another catastrophe like COVID-19. And the panel included Stefan Bonsall, Chief Executive Officer of Moderna, Regina Dugan, CEO at Welcome Leap, and Dr. Wu Zunyo, Chief Epidemiologist at the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Here's some of that conversation, including Moderna's big news this week. On Monday, we announced that the first interim analysis of a phase three study, that's a study of 30,000 participants, shows almost 95% efficacy. Uh, but the piece that makes me almost more excited is the fact that of the 11 people with severe disease, they were all on placebo. We none on the vaccine. And so if you think about it, what does that mean? I mean that once we get the final data within the next, you know, 7 to 15 days, we should be able to see if this is confirmed that if you get our vaccine, you have 95% chance of having no disease. And if you get disease, you will have mild symptoms, meaning you will not have severe disease. And as we know, that has really been a big impact in terms of hospitalization, for a patient doing the worst ICU, for a patient doing the worst death. And all the impact it has had not only on human life, of course, but on the mental health, on the economy. Uh, we think this could be a game changer. And so what we're doing now is getting the, the final data all locked up, submitting these to regulatory agencies around the world, uh, and hopefully, I hope, getting the vaccine approved under emergency use before the end of the year. We're making as much product as we can, and we said we will have before the end of the year 20 million doses ready to ship as soon as we have regulatory approval. All right. So that's certainly some upbeat news. Dr. Wu, I want to bring you into this conversation. When you and I spoke over the weekend, I believe you were in Xinjiang or had been in Xinjiang. China has done, and I think most would argue that as among the biggest, the most developed country, you guys have done a good job in terms of containing the virus. But even so, there continues to be breakouts. Where are we in China when it comes to COVID-19? I just come back from uh, Xinjiang, now back to the Beijing. We uh, just uh, controlled another outbreak uh, in Kashka, Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. The epidemic started in the letter of October and uh, brought under control in the November. So in the China, I think what we did is have very strong surveillance and uh, treat control the epidemic as a war. So. Uh, go back to the earlier response to the initial outbreak in Wuhan. Most of the people suspect China 
delayed or does not respond very quickly. Actually, I give you two examples. We did a very uh, bold decision. For example, when the outbreak uh, first noticed by doctors, that's uh, last December 27th, and the national experts arrived in the Wuhan, they made a bold decision to close the seafood market. At that time, there were only 40 cases and uh, 27 of them had exposure to Huanan seafood market. Make that decision is tough. And the national expert and the local expert has different opinion. And the local uh, expert has gone against uh, to achieve that decision. Another decision is to uh, shut down Wuhan city. So we uh, responded to the COVID-19 very quickly. We tried to remove all the rice virus from the community to clean it up, that makes the society safe. So now China, I think, is back to the zero local transmission now. Over. Regina, I want you to come in on this too. What are you hearing from your network about sure. kind of where we are in this process and in this cycle in terms of dealing with the virus? Well, I want to calibrate for a moment, because remember, the normal time to go from an outbreak to a vaccine is something like five to 10 years. So this achievement here is remarkable, unprecedented. The team at Moderna goes from virus sequence to first dosing in humans in 63 days. And as Stefan is fond of saying, that's an advance a decade in the making. In fact, I remember a decade ago when mRNA-based vaccines were first proposed. And the critics said there was no evidence to suggest it would work. And Others said there is no evidence to suggest it won't. We should try. And if we are successful, it would matter. And here we are today. In fact, it matters. So I think what we're hearing now is how do we begin to work on the next pieces? So how do we shorten the clinical trial? How do we begin to get manufacturing underway so that we can couple the early warning with a rapid response. And there's still much more to do there. In, in my view, this is the Sputnik moment of our generation, right? And in the same way that Sputnik inspired a space age, so too might this pandemic inspire a health age. Lots to do. So. I want to continue this conversation because now I want to kind of look forward. The poll that's out there, we'd love to hear your response. The question we're asking, what are the lessons from Asia's successful response to COVID-19? Some individual freedom must be sacrificed for the public good. That's answer A. Answer B, early lockdowns reduce overall economic impact. Answer C, more investment in digital health infrastructure, including contact tracing. And D, face coverings work. So having said that, and we'll look for those responses. So let me ask you, how do we make sure this never, ever happens again? Bloomberg New Economy said there is no greater challenge for our global leaders than figuring out how to make sure this never happens again. Stefan, can we do this? Do we now have the playbook? I think we've learned a lot. And as Regina said, I mean, first, what has been done this year by scientists all around the world and the collaboration we have seen is unprecedented in terms of the speed. But we've learned a lot as well. And I think there are two dimensions where we should invest aggressively across the world in public-private partnership to reduce the time to get to a vaccine. Because as we know, you know, public health measures are extremely important. Uh, and right now, wearing a mask and social distancing are critical. Uh, treatment are very important to take care of people in hospital. But to really get back to normal, we need to vaccinate people. 
And so I'm going to focus on the vaccine front, which is really the, the piece I know the most. So there are two things that I think we need to really invest a lot on. One is going after the top 10 or 20 pathogens, viruses, that are known to be at risk and doing extensive work, doing all the preclinical, preclinical work in animals, run phase ones, which is when you decide what dose do you need, and then run phase two to give you around a thousand people worth of safety. Because if we had done that for, for example, MERS or SARS, the first SARS, before the start of the year, when we got the sequence put online by the Chinese, we could have right away gone into a phase three. So instead, as Regina said, on March 16 to start a phase one, we could have started a phase three if we knew the dose and that already exposed enough people because it's only a few sequence change of a mutation. Right. So that's number one, preclinical and clinical work. And if you think about it, I will guess estimate it's around 20 to $40 million per virus. So times 10 or 20 virus, it is nothing at the global scale of a planet. The second thing is manufacturing. If we have had a big plant in Asia, a big plant in Europe, a big plant in Africa, one in the US, North and Northern and Southern Hemisphere, that could make, let's say, 50 million dollars a month. You could have had, starting right away in January, make 50 million dollars a month, that would make you around 400 million dollars per plant by the summer. You have your face free data in June, you'll have you know, 400 million dollars per continent and vaccinate a lot of people. Think about the different winter we will go through right now. Stefan, I want to jump in because, right, I understand that we could reduce the, the timeline. Dr. Wu, come in on this because I think a big part of this discussion is, is it all about vaccines? Is it vaccines that save the world? I mean, the WHO warning that they're not going to arrive in time for us to really deal with this second wave of COVID and that they should not be seen as a unicorn magic solution. Dr. Wu, are vaccines the answer to all of this? I think at this moment it's not yet. I think the uh, the question you asked about uh, how to uh, let this happen again, I think most of the urgent uh, question how to bring the epidemic uh, under control. It's uh, very urgent. So just to get the beginning of the winter, the number of cases continue to rise in the European countries, in the United States. The number of daily cases reached to over 600,000 uh, per day. That's enormous. So when we get to the winter, the number of cases will continue. I think the public health measures like wear masks, social distance, hand washing, and ventilation, all of these public health measures are still the major effective measures to be used to control the epidemic. So the vaccine, it's a good message. It's a good technical weapons for control the epidemic. However, that cannot be used in the winter or cannot be brought the epidemic under control before next spring. So now we, we think we need to have two strategies go hand by hand, up the health at one hand and push vaccine at the other hand. That was Dr. Wu Zunyo, Chief Epidemiologist at the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention, along with Stefan Bonsell, Chief Executive Officer at Moderna, and Regina Dugan, CEO at Welcome Leap. And they were at this week's Bloomberg New Economy Forum talking about how to avoid another virus and rebuild global public health. Catch more discussions with global leaders. You can find that from the New Economy Forum. Just go to neweconomyforum.com and also 
Bloomberg.com. That wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. More coming up in our next hour, including exciting results when it comes to the vaccine this week. But we've got to slow down. There are still lots of questions to be answered about those results from Pfizer and Moderna. We'll cover that story. Plus, creating the world's safest restaurant franchise and the magic mushrooms that could change the world for millions of people. That's coming up on Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. Coming up in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, highlights from our daily radio show, including stories in the magazine and some of our favorite interviews. And that includes the restaurant franchise idea that started out to do one thing and then found its footing in a COVID-19 world. We'll talk about that with John Taffer, Bar Rescue host and executive producer. Also, the Insider's Guide to Jeopardy! Yes, that wildly successful and long-running game show. And the magic mushrooms that the FDA says are a breakthrough therapy. First up, though, another story reported for Business Week about the optimism over vaccine developments from both Pfizer and Moderna. And yet, as Bloomberg News health reporter James Patton points out, the remarkable vaccine results leave a lot of questions unanswered. James joined us from London, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. James uh, and Bob Langworth wrote this story actually just sort of right off the heels of the Pfizer news. Mm-hmm. And, and then the Moderna stuff happened. And I still think that all the stuff that they raised in their story remains relevant. And, and, you know, the one that I think is the elephant in the room is is one that I think, Carol, just playing off of what you just said, I Mm -hmm. think everyone is really interested in, which is how long will this efficacy last? Um, So I'll kick it over to Mr. Patton with that. What other question? Let's talk about that question. But Mm -hmm. I'm also interested in the other unknowns that, um, you know, we as journalists are are asking about um, and will continue to ask about as the, the race for a vaccine continues. Well, as Joel mentioned, you know, one of the big questions is how long that protection is going to last. We, we simply don't know the answer to that or when the uh, immunity could wear off. Uh, so we don't know how often people may need to get booster shots down the road. That's a significant um, question. Um, researchers are, um, you know, also waiting for more data on the vaccine's ability to prevent not just serious illness, but infections and to stop people from passing it on to others. Um, so, you know, we've seen two press releases from uh, from Pfizer uh, and its German partner, BioNTech, and now from Moderna. Uh, and, you know, these are hugely promising and the, the results are extraordinary. Um, but we don't you know, have all the data yet that experts need to um, to assess these products. They're still waiting for some key uh, safety data. The people who um, ultimately receive the vaccines will need to be uh, tracked, you know, for many months uh, to monitor safety. So, um, you know, there are, you know, not to mention the issues. I mean, you were talking about vaccine hesitancy. Mm-hmm. How many people are actually going to take vaccines once they're rolled out? the production and logistics storage distribution all of those uh all of those issues remain so uh, again you know we have to keep in mind that what we're seeing in the past week is a big turning point and and this is really positive uh, news but we still have to uh we still have to wait to get answers to a bunch of these questions Okay, James, I want to ask um, specifically just, um, you know, we had the Pfizer stuff last week. We've had the Moderna stuff. I'm, I'm wondering um, how much 
we should be reading into the differences t- between those two vaccines so far, since that's, you know, one of those other questions that <laughs> remains sort of um, unanswered, but very of the moment. How, how are you looking at the differences between them? Yeah, well, it's a good, it's a good question. I mean, um, the, the obvious um, similarity is that both of these rely on, uh, you know, this novel technology known as messenger uh, RNA uh, so, you know, that is a uh, an approach that's never been used before to develop uh, an approved vaccine. And, um, you know, a number of others are using very different approaches. Uh, but one of the um, uh, things that they actually have in common is many of these uh, vaccines under development are targeting, uh, you know, everyone's heard of the spike protein now. Um, and that actually bodes well for uh, many of the others as well, like AstraZeneca uh, and its partner, um, University of Oxford, that are going to have uh, data coming uh, coming soon. But there is also a difference, uh, distinction between the uh, Pfizer and Moderna's uh, Moderna vaccines in terms of uh, in terms of storage. And so that is um uh, you know, that's another another one that people are going to be closely um, following because um, that could, you know, especially in the case of the um, the Pfizer vaccine, that could uh, could slow things down a bit. Well, and this, actually, just to be very yeah, specific there, yeah, James, no, like, tell us tell us about the specific differences there because the Pfizer one obviously requires a cold sto- storage <laughs> that's colder colder than my fridge. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, basically, today, what was interesting is, and this is a this is a positive um, uh, a positive development. The um, the company pointed to data that basically shows that the vaccine is stable at refrigerator temperatures for thirty days. Now that is uh, much longer than previously estimated, and that is very important because of those storage and distribution. Uh, issues that we're talking about that are seen as big challenges. So, you know, Pfizer's vaccine needs to be stored at these like ultra cold temperatures until a few days before it's used. Um, and so those are important distinctions between the uh, two. I think in the case of the Moderna vaccine, it can be kept in freezers, though um, it doesn't need, um, you know, it doesn't need the same kind of facilities that the, that the right. Pfizer vaccine will, uh, will, will need ultimately. So, so that's, a big, um, uh, that's a big issue uh, uh, down the track. Yeah, that's a reminder that there are still several big issues about getting a vaccine out to the world. That was Bloomberg Health reporter James Patton and Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. That story, by the way, written by James, along with Bloomberg healthcare reporter Bob Langrith. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. I suggest that the next thing people are going to do after they get the vaccine is go to dinner. It started as an idea before COVID as a solution to a very tight labor market. Now it's finding itself right at home in the pandemic. That's coming up. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. Coming up in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, highlights from our daily radio show, including stories in the magazine and some of our favorite interviews. And that includes the restaurant franchise idea that started out to do one thing and then found its footing in a COVID-19 world. We'll talk about that with John Taffer, bar rescue host and executive producer. Also, the Insider's Guide to Jeopardy, yes, that wildly successful and long-running game show. And 
the magic mushrooms that the FDA says are a breakthrough therapy. First up, though, another story reported for Business Week about the optimism over vaccine developments from both Pfizer and Moderna. And yet, as Bloomberg News health reporter James Patton points out, the remarkable vaccine results leave a lot of questions unanswered. James joined us from London, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. James uh, and Bob Langworth wrote this story actually just sort of right off the heels of the Pfizer news mm-hmm. and, and then the Moderna stuff happened. And I still think that all the stuff that they raised in their story remains relevant. And, and, you know, the one that I think is the elephant in the room is is one that I think, Carol, just playing off of what you just said, I Mm -hmm. think everyone is really interested in, which is how long will this efficacy last? Um, So I'll kick it over to Mr. Patton with that. What other question? Let's talk about that question. But Mm -hmm. I'm also interested in the other unknowns that, um, you know, we as journalists are are asking about um, and will continue to ask about as the, the race for a vaccine continues. Well, as Joel mentioned, you know, one of the big questions is how long that protection is going to last. We, we simply don't know the answer to that or when the uh, immunity could wear off. Uh, so we don't know how often people may need to get booster shots down the road. That's a significant um, question. Um, researchers are, um, you know, also waiting for more data on the vaccine's ability to prevent not just serious illness, but infections and to stop people from passing it on to others. Um, so, you know, we've seen two press releases from uh, from Pfizer uh, and its German partner, BioNTech, and now from Moderna. Uh, and, you know, these are hugely promising and the, the results are extraordinary. Um, but we don't you know, have all the data yet that experts need to um, to assess these products. They're still waiting for some key uh, safety data. The people who um, ultimately receive the vaccines will need to be uh, tracked, you know, for many months uh, to monitor safety. So, um, you know, there are, you know, not to mention the issues. I mean, you were talking about vaccine hesitancy. Mm-hmm. How many people are actually going to take vaccines once they're rolled out? the production and logistics storage distribution all of those uh all of those issues remain so uh, again you know we have to keep in mind that what we're seeing in the past week is a big turning point and and this is really positive uh, news but we still have to uh we still have to wait to get answers to a bunch of these questions Okay, James, I want to ask um, specifically just, um, you know, we had the Pfizer stuff last week. We've had the Moderna stuff. I'm I'm wondering um, how much we should be reading into the differences between those two vaccines so far, since that's, you know, one of those other questions that (laughs) remains sort of um, unanswered, but very of the moment. How, How are you looking at the differences between them? Yeah, well, it's a good it's a good question. I mean, um, the the obvious um, similarity is that both of these rely on uh, you know this novel technology known as messenger uh, RNA. Uh, so you know that is a uh, an approach that's never been used before to develop uh, an approved vaccine, and um, you know a number of others are using very different approaches. Uh, but one of the um, uh, the things that they actually have in common is many of these. Uh, vaccines under development are targeting, uh, you know, everyone's heard of the spike protein now, um, and that actually bodes well for uh, many of the others as well, like AstraZeneca uh, and its partner, um, University of Oxford, that are going to have uh, data coming uh, coming soon. But there is also a difference, uh, distinction between the uh, Pfizer and Moderna's 
uh, Moderna vaccines in terms of uh, in terms of storage. And so that is, um, uh, you know, that's another another one that people are going to be closely um, following because um, that could, you know, especially in the case of the um, the Pfizer vaccine, that could uh, could slow things down a bit. Well, and this, actually, just to be very yeah, specific there, yeah, James, no, like, tell us tell us about the specific differences there, because the Pfizer one obviously requires a cold sto- storage <laughs> that's colder, colder than my fridge. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, basically today what was interesting is and this is a this is a positive, um, uh, a positive development, the. Um, the company pointed to data that basically shows that the vaccine is stable at refrigerator temperatures for 30 days. Now, that is uh, much longer than previously estimated, and that is very important because of those storage and distribution uh, issues that we're talking about that are seen as big challenges. So, you know, Pfizer's vaccine needs to be stored at these, like, ultra-cold temperatures until a few days before it's used. Um, and so those are important distinctions between the uh, two. I think in the case of the Moderna vaccine, it can be kept in freezers, though um, it doesn't need, um, you know, it doesn't need the same kind of facilities that the, the right. Pfizer vaccine will, uh, will, will need ultimately. So, so that's, a big, um, uh, that's a big issue uh, uh, down the track. Yeah, that's a reminder that there are still several big issues about getting a vaccine out to the world. That was Bloomberg Health reporter James Patton and Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. That story, by the way, written by James, along with Bloomberg Healthcare reporter Bob Langrith. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. I suggest that the next thing people are going to do after they get the vaccine is go to dinner. It started as an idea before COVID as a solution to a very tight labor market. Now it's finding itself right at home in the pandemic. That's coming up. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. You know that sound. That is, of course, from the game show Jeopardy. And we recently got the sad news of the passing of Alex Trebek at the age of 80. Now, he and the show Jeopardy inextricably linked as Trebek hosted the show for 37 years. Journalist Claire McNear has written a book about the show. It's entitled Answers in the Form of Questions, A Definitive History and Insider's Guide to Jeopardy. She gives us a behind-the-scenes look into one of America's most popular and successful game shows. Claire, by the way, is a writer for The Ringer, where she covers sports and culture. Culture. We began by talking about the top performing contestant, Ken Jennings. Ken is such an interesting figure in, yeah. in Jeopardy's history, and obviously I, I am biased now that he has written my forward, but he is really a delight. Uh, he was first on the show in, in 2004, and he won 74 games, and of course became this kind of national sensation, and has been on the show um, uh, many times since then, including this past January when he won the greatest of all time tournament and, and said that he had kind of retired from Jeopardy gameplay and now is actually a consulting producer with the show. But uh, he, he's a really interesting case because he, he has been able to sort of uh, track these changes in the way that um, Jeopardy's played over the years. And uh, that was that was really something I was curious about going into the book and wanted to highlight. He he has said that really what what we're seeing right now is kind of a money ball moment for Jeopardy, where it used to be in, in 2004, even 10 years ago, even less than that. It used to be like if you were preparing for Jeopardy, you got the call to go on and and tape an episode, and you had maybe three weeks before your taping. You you know make some flashcards for the presidents and vice presidents, and then you'd you'd be good to go. But now people 
prepare in this rigorous kind of academic way in physical ways. People try to shave down uh, their reaction time so that they can master the buzzer more effectively. They, yeah. they you know, use all kinds of math to tell them what to do in Final Jeopardy and, and with Daily Doubles. It's, it's become this really kind of advanced statistics sort of thing. Yeah, it's like the good old days when we just take the SAT and we didn't really think about it. Yeah. Now it's like, man, everybody's got like... Right. Yeah. Exactly. Hey, listen, tell us about the test that contestants take, because my understanding is that Alex used to take it a lot. And I'm wondering, didn't you take it? I did, unfortunately, yes. Um, Yeah, so the any any aspiring Jeopardy contestant takes a 50 question um, online test. And it's the kind of material you would see on the show, you don't have to write in um, the who is or the what is, but it is that same kind of general interest sort of stuff you would see on any any given night. And it, it is generally thought that 35 out of 50 is a passing score. It's a really hard test, but they don't even tell you how you do much less what a passing score is. So, uh, of course, it becomes this thing where after people take the test, they huddle with other contestants and compare <laughs> answers, and they figure out exactly how they did. It's and, like being in high school uh, again, right? Exactly, exactly. And and if they do pass, they they might get invited then to an audition where they basically do the same thing over again. And, of course, what that looks like now is you do it over a video with, with one of the show's producers and contestant coordinators um, and kind of in real time saying the answers. Um, and then if you pass that, you move on to sort of a buzzer audition. Can you play the game? Would you would you work on television kind of thing? Um, and and then you might get invited to the show after after that final step. But yes, I was uh, <laughs> yeah. more or less tricked into taking the test by the producers. I'd, I'd gone to for the book, uh, basically spy on one of, one of the auditions last year. And uh, at the last minute, they they informed me that I would be required to take the test as well. And Needless to say, you will not be seeing me on Jeopardy anytime soon, which is absolutely for the best. I know. That's, that's, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. Um, what I want to ask you is, Alex Trebek, what was he like? Yeah, he, oh man, he was, he, he was so what he seemed like on the show. He, he so much was that, that kind of scholarly, smart, sharp, curious, kind of acerbic, self-deprecating person. He was really funny, too. And, and I think uh, well, one of my favorite discoveries in this was um, you could see at the end of episodes, Alex Trebek approaches the contestant podiums and, mm-hmm. and kind of has like a chit-chat, shakes the champion's hand, but you can't hear what they're saying. They turn the mics off for that. And I talked to a whole lot of contestants who had been on the stage, and, and what they said is that more often than not, what he was saying was, he just wanted to talk about whatever the final Jeopardy question had been. He wanted to ask the people who got it, how did you work that out? And he, he wanted to kind of softly chide the people who didn't get there, who, of course, are heartbroken that they've just lost on Jeopardy. And he just, he, he really did care about those things. He cared about the trivia. It was important to him. Um, and I think that just, it came through in his hosting. And I think it did mm. so much to help the show have that identity. Oh, I mean, it is, it is so hard imagine Jeopardy without Alex Trebek. You know, I think Ken Jennings embodies a lot of what people would want in a Jeopardy contestant in that he has a lot of those same qualities and that he is very smart. He does care very much about these things. He is funny. Obviously, because he's been on the show so much over the last 16 years, he is kind of synonymous with Jeopardy. 
We shall see what happens. That's Claire McNear, writer for The Ringer, where she covers sports and culture. Her book answers in the form of questions, a definitive history and insider's guide to Jeopardy. Here's a question. Who will be the next host of Jeopardy? All right, straight ahead on Bloomberg Business Week, someone who is trying to find answers for millions of sufferers and the answer that may lay in something that's been around for thousands of years. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. We're going to wrap up this week with something innovative, provocative, and still yet in the early phase, and be featured in an upcoming edition of Bloomberg Business Week Talks. It's about one of this year's successful IPOs, a company that has patented a synthetic version of the active ingredient in so-called magic mushrooms for use in treatment-resistant depression. We caught up with Compass Pathways chairman, CEO, and co-founder George Goldsmith. He joined us from London and talked to us about what has been a very personal story. From our point of view, we had a Our son really struggled with mental health issues when he went to university, like far too many young people do. We thought, how hard could this be? You know, there are good treatments and therapies. Yet the more he encountered, the more difficult it was for him to be recognizable to us with the side effects, and it didn't really help him. So we then started talking to lots of different people, doing our own research. My co-founder and wife, uh, Ekaterina Maneskaya, is a doctor. And and in her own research, she stumbled across uh, psilocybin and psilocybin research, and we became really intrigued by this. Um, The other thing that happened simultaneously is the more people we talked about our own challenges that we were facing, the more we heard from others about their challenges. And these would be long-term friends who we'd known for quite a while, but they never felt comfortable sharing their own challenges until we did. And that really led us to to understand that almost everybody has a story of, you know, how the current system isn't quite helping enough people well enough. And that really inspired us to look at this research. We saw its promise. And uh, and the issue is how do we bring it to patients, not just bring it into the next journal article. And journal articles are critically important, but they're necessary, but not sufficient to bring this to patients. And that's really our commitment. Well, and I do, you know, it's interesting, I was doing some reading on this, and that my understanding is for those, you know, patients and, and individuals who, who deal with and, and suffer uh, depression, that the existing treatments only really work for about 70% of patients, leaving as many as 90 million still struggling around the world. I think that's some World Health Organization. So it is a huge, and I hate to put it in business terms, but we are Bloomberg, it's a huge market. <laughs> uh, it is. I hate forgive me. Great markets of suffering. But, I know. You know forgive I, me. It is a huge market, right? In that sense, and so there's a tremendous amount of suffering. And I think we've been pretty good at developing tools to ameliorate seventy percent of that. But the thirty percent is quite quite difficult because what happens is with each new treatment, those people actually have less and less likelihood to be helped by what's next. And there's been a very large studies in the U.S. by the National Institute of Mental Health. And and we really have documentation for that. So if we have the opportunity to do something unique here, Mm -hmm. which is a single dose. So what we do is we provide a very high dose of psilocybin in a carefully controlled setting under supervision by specially trained therapists. So this isn't anything that anyone would do at home. And... um, Patients listen to a special soundtrack, and they're really supported through this process. And what happens is that afterwards, for many patients, they experience an immediate reduction in depression, 
that actually lasts for quite a while. Right. And what our research is really looking at is, well, who benefits? Not everyone. Mm-hmm. So who doesn't? And what separates the people who benefit for a few weeks from the single dose for a few months and people who actually have even longer experiences? So we've went to the FDA and actually we're operating now in 10 countries doing clinical research, 21 research sites. And we're really looking at how do we do the real deep research to generate the information and insight we need to go to what's the next phase for us, which would be phase three trials. And we'll be reporting out on our phase two trials about a year from now. So we've been really excited about the progress. Yeah, and I should say that the FDA has named your experimental treatment, quote, a breakthrough therapy, which is, you know, really wonderful to kind of get that acknowledgement. But it also means now you've got to do more rigorous, more risk adverse testing. It's a lot of pressure, I'm assuming. And you've got to make sure you're working with the right scientists, the best scientists, the best clinical trials, correct? Well, absolutely. And and absolutely. And then even more so, right? Because obviously, there's a history here. um, And Mm -hmm. what we're looking to do is the highest quality, rigorous, most rigorous research. The first port of call for us was actually, even before we formed the company, to speak with regulators, payers, just to understand what did they think about this and what we were really struck by in, in all the conversations and the breakthrough therapy designation is, a, I think, a perfect example of this. The problem is so big. That's what you said. You know, there's such a huge amount of suffering here. The tools we have are good for some, but not good enough. Right. They just saw that this is a promising. So what we found is that a huge amount of support, but we really have to get this right. We have to get it right for patients, for their families, and society. How big of a market opportunity do you think is there for Compass Pathways? Just quickly. Well, I think that what we see in this is that obviously there are about 90 million people suffering from so-called treatment-resistant depression. But to be clear, this isn't people. Who, this is not a group of people who are resisting treatment. This is a group of people right. for whom our treatments don't work. And so perhaps, you know, I think this is really, really important. But that's just the start because really what we're looking at is working on areas of mental health where people get caught in patterns of negative thinking or patterns of obsessive thinking. That happens in other areas like anxiety or OCD or other things. And we're really curious about how could this mechanism of a high dose of psilocybin therapy yield benefit for other classes of people who aren't helped enough. So is this like a potentially a multi-billion dollar drug potential? Um, Well, I think that it is potential to have it be a therapy. It's really important that it's not a drug. It's a drug that's given in consult combination with psychological support. And that's the critical bit. Hey, so before I move on, though, you did say, and I thought this was a really important distinction, George, is you said, it's not a drug, it's a potential therapy. Having said that, I do think, you know, our listeners are curious um, about how big that market size might be. Anxiety disorders, depression, the depression treatment market, it's expected to be something like 21 billion by 2025. So what's your expectation or thoughts on this? So a few things. One is that I appreciate your digging into this. So just to give you and your listeners some perspective, uh, depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide, just depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the U.S., the annual cost of depression is forecast to be about $200 billion per year. 
And a large number of that is direct costs of outpatients, inpatient medical services, pharmaceutical services. And the number you referred to is largely in the pharmaceutical space. Now, what we know is that about a third of patients, as you mentioned, simply aren't helped. And the third of patients that aren't helped actually are about three to four times more expensive, two to three, depends on kind of where where you're doing the data, um, than patients who are helped by these medicines. Um, And so we have not only a very large group of patients who aren't helped, but also those are the most expensive patients. And so if we could make a difference in their lives, I think there's a huge opportunity to really um, develop a new model of care for them. And this is what's so interesting about what we're doing. It is a therapy, right? It's a single dose under supervised circumstances uh, with preparation and then some follow-up afterwards. And what's really unique about this, so they did some really fascinating work at Johns Hopkins where a lot of this research was uh, reborn uh, over 10 years ago. One of the questions they asked patients who had gone through this, and they asked this question six weeks after this experience. They said, how meaningful would you say this experience was in your life? Personally meaningful. And people were given, you know, is it the most meaningful, the top five, you know, and so... Over 70% said the single experience was one of the top five most meaningful experiences of their life. Right. So you can't, re- you can't really put, you can't, you can't, it was the most meaningful. <laughs> you can't, right. No, no, no. And, and I wish you, we were in person because you could see me smiling because you can't put a value on it. And I have a sister who works in this area. So I've kind of grown up learning about this. And I agree that there's an unbelievable cost by not you know, helping out this sector of our population. And also it's invaluable in terms of they basically get their lives back. Having said that, you kind of evaded my answer. So is this like a, a multi-billion dollar potential treatment or tens well, of... I bi- think it is a multi... Yes, I think it is multi-billion. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've had... So, but again... That's if the trials work. Well, <laughs> well, what's, well let, here, right? let's let's uh, talk about that because that's a big deal. I mean, listen, we're all learning about the drug process, right? Because of the drug approval process, yeah. because of COVID. What challenges does does the U.S. present? What regulatory hurdles still remain? And I, I do wonder if you're following kind of the playbook from marijuana, kind of prescription first, recreational second. How are you thinking about it? Not at all. Okay. No, no, we're we're really thinking about the huge unmet need there is for patients. Uh, and uh, that's, you know, what we're really focused on is access, and that means approval by Medicaid, by, you know, insurers. So from day one, we've been really focusing on making sure that if this, in fact, is successful in trials, people have access to it, and that means working with insurers, even in the design of clinical trials, to make sure they have the evidence that says, hey, this is for this patient population. So that's super important to us. It's a different model than a recreational model. And that's Compass Pathways Chairman, CEO, and co-founder George Goldsmith. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into our daily show Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. Be sure to also check out our Bloomberg Business Week podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, we're also on YouTube. Just search on Bloomberg Global News. And check out our Bloomberg Business Week Extra podcast. We had a chat with Mattel President Richard Dixon on a new digital platform called Mattel Creations. Bloomberg Business Week, it's available on newsstands now, online, and of course, always on the Bloomberg. Have a safe weekend, everybody. This is Bloomberg.